Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 45, Genesis chapters 49 and 50, the end of our study of Genesis. The last week, we were close to finishing up Genesis 49, and this week, we're going to complete Genesis 49 and 50 and conclude our study of Genesis. Now, Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. And last time we looked carefully at the prophetic blessing given to him, which would be handed off to his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And this because Ephraim and Manasseh, but primarily Ephraim, would be the representatives of Joseph's tribe. That is, within a few years of Joseph's death, any reference to a tribe of Joseph would diminish until the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh thoroughly replaced it. Now, in the future biblical writings where Joseph is mentioned, the words will be accompanied with the comment that the rod of authority for the tribe of Joseph is in the hand of Ephraim. So, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 49. I'm going to read from verses um, 27 on to the end. Genesis 49, verses 27 to the end. Benjamin, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and in the evening still dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is how their father spoke to them and blessed them, giving each his own individual blessing. Then he charged them as follows. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my ancestors in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hitti, the cave in the field of Machpelah by Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought together with the field from uh, Ephron the Hitti as a burial place belonging to him. And there they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Yitzhak and his wife Rivka. There I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it, which was purchased from the sons of Het. When Yaakov had finished charging his sons, he drew his legs up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Well, lastly we come to Benjamin. And a total of one verse is dedicated to the blessing of Benjamin. And if we really need any more proof than it is the Holy Spirit guiding these blessings, then Benjamin's should be all that we require. Because Jacob's second favorite and youngest son was given a blessing that was anything but flattering. Even though we have been shown in Scripture that Jacob carefully protected and fawned over Benjamin. But yet Benjamin was characterized as being a predator, a wolf. 
all right, vicious, merciless, all right, and this would prove to be true. Okay, Benjamin had a rather schizophrenic future, though it would have contact with and even play a part in the royalty of Israel. Benjamin was also ferocious and stiff-necked. Now, much of the outcome of the descendants of Benjamin had to do with their, between a rock and a hard spot, uh, territorial allotment for his tribe. Right? Because um, they were in the unenviable position of being a buffer state, if you would, between Ephraim and Judah. Further, this narrow strip of land that they occupied, um, that both the major north to south and east to west um, trade routes passed, went through the territory of Benjamin. Right? Now, sometimes, you know, we get these incorrect mental pictures of these multi-thousand-man armies. Uh, these ancient armies on the move, scampering over hilltops like mice, you know, and blazing new trails as they went. Not true. Not true at all. Right? As any military man could tell you, wars are fought around and over and by means of the major highways of the world. Right? Because the roadways, the seaways, and now the airways are where the armies have to travel. Right? The roadways were placed there in the first place because there was water available. The terrain was friendlier. Right? Even back in the days of Abraham, well before this time, wagons and carts were, were in use. And so there, were, there needed to be rather flat in wide trails to accommodate the rather fragile wheel and axle mechanisms of those early wooden vehicles. Now these trade routes that crossed through Benjamin also likely produced a very valuable source of income for Benjamin in the form of Benjamin attacking and plundering those merchant caravans. I mean, remember, one tribe pillaging another and taking what they needed to increase their own wealth and serve their own needs is the very essence of the tribal system. All right? And it remains so to this day. Okay. Now, it might surprise you, but the holiest city in all the land was in their territory. Yeah, Jerusalem was originally in the city, in the, uh, uh, territory of Benjamin, not Judah, all right, as many might assume. All right. um, in addition, there were these important cities of Mitzpah and Ramah and Gibeon and Bethel, even Jericho. All these places were within Benjamin's territory. And it's now well established that these various 12 tribes of Israel had battles amongst themselves. But perhaps no tribe was considered as ferocious and as self-serving as Benjamin. Right. One excellent example out of the Bible of Benjamin's characteristics is found in the book of Judges, 
which took place at a particularly bad time for Israel, when the Bible says of the condition of the tribes in the Holy Land, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Okay. Benjamin was right at the center of a terribly chaotic series of wars between the tribes of Israel. And in the city of Gibeah, an incident occurred that was eerily akin to when Lot was in Sodom and the townspeople wanted to have a homosexual uh, wanted to have homosexual sex with the two angels that had come to bring God's judgment upon Sodom. Okay. The crux of the, the matter of the story in Judges was that a man from the tribe of Ephraim was temporarily staying in Gibeah, in Benjamin's territory, when, when, um, when he took in a traveler as a guest in his home. And the Benjamite men in Gibeah demanded that that traveler be given to them so they could ravage him. Okay. The elderly man from Ephraim offered his daughter and his concubine instead. Okay. And so they took his concubine and nearly killed her. All right. After they returned her, the man considered his concubine so defiled as to be worthless to him. So he killed her. He cut her into 12 pieces and he sent those pieces out to each of the tribes with a message attached. Right? And the other tribes of Israel were so outraged at this that they gathered together and sent an army against Benjamin to punish it. Right? Now as an aside, we can see in this incident the terrible, unholy condition of the tribes of Israel in the time of the judges, such that we would see the mutilation by the man of his own concubine is not only a justifiable act by him, but also see that all the blame rested upon Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, uh, who had ruined her just as ruined her just as a routine matter. This wasn't an, was not an unusual incident, apparently. Well, when the battle against Benjamin began, Benjamin devastated the coalition army of uh, Israel for the first couple of days. Now, interestingly. Part of the reason that Benjamin was succeeding against these superior armies was a combination of ferocity and that they had a group of deadly accurate stone slingers who killed 40,000 of the enemy in battle. And by the way, all of these particular soldiers were left-handed, a trait that was common among the members of the tribe of Benjamin. Right. And in the end, the coalition army finally did get the upper hand and they wound up virtually annihilating the tribe of Benjamin nearly to the point of extinction. All right. The tribe of Benjamin never fully recovered from that time forward. Now, one of the most famous Old Testament men of Benjamin was Saul, often called the first king of Israel. Now, while I don't want to get technical, there is disagreement among both Jewish and Christian scholars as to whether he was really the first king of Israel or whether he was simply the last judge, all right, albeit a kind of a centralized judge that attempted to rule over more than his own tribe. All right. Now, he was never really accepted 
by all of Israel as their king, and his reign was absolute, never-ending turmoil as a result. But more important, God never really anointed Saul as king, so failure was bound to be the result. Yet towards the end of Old Testament times, we find two members of the tribe of Benjamin rising above that ruinous Benjamin, uh, Benjamite tribal character, Esther, the namesake of the book of Esther, and her cousin Mordecai. Right? And the Jewish festival of, of uh, Purim was established in memory of the brave acts of those two and saving the Jews from the pagan peoples of that time who were led by an infamous man named Haman. Well, other than for Benjamin himself, though, I doubt there is any more famous and influential Benjamite in all their tribal history than for St. Paul. Okay, the Apostle Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? Yet, it should also be remembered that his saying he was from that tribe was simply a family remembrance because he also called himself a Jew. Right? which any surviving Israelite living in Paul's day would have done. Okay? The tribe of Benjamin as an independent and separate entity was gone and assimilated by Paul's day, assimilated by the tribe of Judah for the most part. And therefore, these former Benjamites were now called Jews. Okay? So now we've completed the blessings of all 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we should bookmark Genesis 48 and 49 in our Bibles as a reference because whether we're studying the Old Testament or the New, these blessings explain much of what was going to happen in the centuries following this event well into a time that is even still future to us today. Now chapter 49 comes to an end with Jacob commanding his sons that they are to take his body and bury it in the cave back up in Canaan, the one that Abraham had purchased, and where Jacob's parents and grandparents and his own wife Leah lay entombed. Then Jacob dies. Well, this paragraph in Genesis 49, this last paragraph, is really the first time that Israel is seen as a nation unto itself. Rather than just a man, Jacob called Israel, with his growing family of 12 sons. In fact, this is the first use right here of what will become a well-worn biblical phrase, the 12 tribes of Israel. Right. Now let's not miss the opportunity to once again notice the mindset of the ancients at work. Where Jacob says, I'm about to be gathered to my kin, please bury me with my fathers. Okay. Now when we can begin to grasp that 99% of everything happening in the Bible must be read between the lines... Right, then we can start to make all the Bible characters the real people living real lives under real and everyday circumstances that they were. Okay, it's, it's important that we understand that the terms used and what the phrases and idioms they employed meant were based entirely 
on the era in which they were spoken. Okay. They're not, those phrases are neither timeless nor universal. Okay. This era had its own beliefs and traditions about death and its aftermath. Israel was no different. Okay. Jacob believed what all the other Middle Eastern societies believed in, ancestor worship. Okay. In no way did ancestor worship seem in conflict in his having trust in Yehovah or in Yehovah's teachings. Okay. That other gods for other people and other nations didn't seem to be in conflict with Yehovah's laws and commands for Jacob and his people. Okay. In fact, to this point in the Bible, there has been no mention of an immortal soul living on in heaven or in any such thing beyond the haziest kind of, of general statement about death. Now in Egypt and a few of the other Middle Eastern cultures of that day, elaborate belief systems and complex rituals concerning the dead and afterlife had been developed. Right? I mean, we don't find that among the Israelites. But neither do we find it necessarily among the bulk of the ancient cultures. Yet in Israel, we do find ancestor worship and respect for the dead and an understanding that there is something beyond the grave, even if it's not fully evident. Now, Jacob wanted to be buried with his fathers because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to commune with them after his death. That's what he thought. Okay? After all, here Jacob was in Egypt. His ancestors were way up north in Canaan. How could his after-death essence commune with his relatives' after-death essences if they were interred hundreds of miles apart? That was his thinking. Okay? And notice the last words that in Genesis 49. And breathing his last... He was gathered to his people. Whoever wrote this down, and it's usually credited to Moses, several hundred years later, also believed in ancestor worship because it states very matter-of-factly that indeed Jacob was gathered to his people. Well, let's move on now to Genesis chapter 50 and conclude our study of the book of Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. Here we go. Joseph fell on his father's face. He wept over him and he kissed him. And then Joseph ordered the physicians in his service to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were spent at this, the normal amount of time for embalming. Then the Egyptians mourned him for seventy days. When the period of mourning was over, Joseph addressed to the household of Pharaoh, I would like to ask a favor. Tell Pharaoh, my father had me swear an oath. He said, I am going to die. You are to bury me in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Therefore, I beg you, let me go up and bury my father. I will return. Pharaoh responded, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. 
So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all Pharaoh's servants, the leaders of his household, and the leaders of the land of Egypt, along with the entire household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their cattle did they leave in the land of Goshen. Moreover, there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very large caravan. When they arrived at the threshing floor in Atad, beyond the Yarden, the Jordan, they raised a loud and bitter lamentation, mourning for his father seven days. When the local inhabitants, the Canaani, saw the mourning on the floor of Atad, they said, how bitterly the Egyptians are mourning. This is why the place was given the name Avel Mitzrayim, mourning of Egypt, there beyond the Jordan. His sons did to him as he had ordered them to do. They carried him into the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah, which Abraham had bought, along with the field as a burial place belonging to him from Ephron the Hitti by Mamre. There, after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. He, his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, Joseph may hate us now and pay us back in full for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent a message to Joseph which said, Your father gave this order before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you now, please forgive your brother's crime and wickedness in doing you harm. So now we beg you, forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him, and his brothers too came, prostrated themselves before him, and said, Here, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You meant to do me harm, but God meant it for good, so that it would come about as it is today with many people's lives having been saved. So don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. In this way, he comforted them, speaking kindly to them. Joseph continued living in Egypt, he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph lived to see Ephraim's great-grandchildren and the children of Manasseh's son, Machir, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am dying, but God will surely remember you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the sons of Israel. God will surely remember you, and you're to carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. What a heart-rending scene we have here with Joseph breaking down upon his father's death and crying and kissing this now empty shell that was Jacob. Then Joseph orders his father's body to be embalmed. Now, this is not now nor ever going to be the usual and normal Israelite custom. However, it did happen from time to time. Now, as we all know, the Egyptians had perfected the art of embalming the dead. 
Okay, now the reason for the embalming, though, was all wrapped up in Egyptian beliefs about life after death. Okay, physical preservation was key in the survival of death by the immortal soul, according to the long-established Egyptian cult of Osiris, who was the god of the underworld. However, that is not the reason or the circumstance that Jacob was involved. The reason was that Jacob's body had to be taken on a substantial and hot journey to Canaan to be buried with his forefathers. And if they hadn't embalmed him, well, I don't think I need to paint a better picture for you. Okay. Now, part of the reason that I know that Jacob's embalming had nothing to do with the, with the Egyptian death cult is that the Bible leaves us a very subtle message about this. It is that Joseph called the, physici uh, the physicians to perform the embalming. Very unusual. Physicians were not normally the embalmers in Egypt. Usually, it was the priests of Osiris. This was because embalming to the Egyptians was not a medical practice. It was a religious practice. And so it was always performed by professional mortuary priests. But in this case, he called physicians to do it. Then in the next few verses, we're given a series of numbers about the number of days that the embalming process and mourning period occurred, and at first glance, they're a little bit confusing and seem almost at odds with one another. We have two periods mentioned, 70 days and 40 days. 40 days for the embalming, it says, and 70 days for mourning. Actually, what we have here is the typical 40 days of embalming followed by the customary 30-day period Hebrews observe for mourning, which give you the total of 70 days. You don't have 40 plus 70 for 110. You have 30 plus 40 for 70. That's what you wind up with here. And so the brothers complied with their father's wishes, and the entire clan, led by Joseph, and except for the smallest children, accompanied by royal charioteers and an armed guard as well, proceeded in what must have been a funeral procession fit for a king, the 200 miles or so from Goshen up to the cave of Machpelah in Canaan. Now, all of Egypt was apparently ordered to go into a period of mourning over Jacob, a very great honor indeed, usually accorded only to royalty. Now, just as we were given a subtle message that Jacob's embalming had nothing to do with Egyptian religious practices or the death cult. We're also given a hint that things were not calm and peaceful in Egypt at this moment in time. Because in verse 5, as Joseph goes to Pharaoh to ask permission to journey to Canaan to bury his father, this would have just been a normal and respectful thing for Joseph to do, Joseph says this, let me go and bury my father, then I will return. 
I mean, obviously, the Pharaoh was a little anxious over Joseph leading this procession of all his primary adult family members back to what was ostensibly their homeland. Pharaoh was concerned that Joseph might not return. So while we can certainly see that what we have here is a funeral procession fit for a king, it was also a funeral procession filled with high Egyptian government officials and a sufficient military presence to both protect everyone in their journey and ensure that Joseph was coming back. Okay. Now let me remind you of two things at this point. First, the current pharaoh of Egypt was not an Egyptian. He was a Semite. Okay. And second, the seven-year famine that we had read so much about was long over. Okay. So from the standpoint, that standpoint, Joseph was not needed so much anymore as an overseer of the nation's food supply. Rather, Joseph was Pharaoh's trusted right-hand man and a valued ally of the same genetic stock as Pharaoh. Now, it is interesting that this chapter not only ends the saga of Jacob's life, but of Joseph's as well. Okay. And so it was necessary biblically to tidy up matters with Joseph's brothers here. Well, after the burial ceremony in Canaan, we're told they all returned to Egypt, but on the way back, the brothers suddenly realized that in the chance that their powerful brother Joseph still held a grudge against them for all those offenses that they had committed against him in the past, their father wasn't around as a hedge of protection anymore. Obviously, they still didn't understand the condition of Joseph's heart. And when they confronted Joseph with their worries, he gently and mercifully assured them that he not only had no intentions of doing anything but caring for them, that in fact they were really nothing but the instruments of instruments in the hand of God, right? Um, just as he was. I mean, that's that's pr pretty merciful. You know, I mean, I pray that God would make me like Joseph, right? that, that I can fully understand that the offenses committed against me by others could really only happen if God decided to allow them to happen. I mean, how often I've looked back upon the trials and the sins of my own life and realized that the blessed place God has led me to could not have happened any other way than the way that it did, with everything associated with it. Now, if I can just feel that way for the yet unresolved things, <laughs> the things that still hurt and the things that I still can't make any sense of, that only God knows why they're necessary, then I'll feel better about it all. Well, what a blessed life were Joseph's remaining days. He says he lived to see his own sons grow and mature and to see his grandchildren born and mature and to see his great-grandchildren born. Okay. And when the Bible says that a child was born on someone's knees, as it does here, it simply means that those children were considered that person's own. Sometimes symbolically, other times it was 
very literal. In this case, it just meant that Joseph was still the leader of his clan and that those children were, by, were accepted by him as his family and they were under his authority. Okay. Well, 54 years after his father died, Joseph expired at the age of 110 years. Now, it would be good to understand that despite the fact that Joseph had been so well treated and highly thought of in Egypt, he made it clear that Egypt was still just a foreign land to him. Okay? So he made his family promise that when that day came that Israel would finally leave Egypt for good, for the promised land, that they would take his bones with them. Joseph was then embalmed as per Egyptian custom, his body placed in a coffin to await that day that he too could join his ancestors in the land that God had promised to the Hebrews. By the way, several scholars have noted that it is likely near to impossible that it was actually Joseph's brothers who heard him say the words, I am about to die, you shall carry my bones from here. Joseph was the second youngest of the twelve. And he died as a very old man. All right. I mean, it's unimaginable that his older brothers all outlived him. All right. Rather, we find the use of the Hebrew word for brother, ah, A-C-H, which can mean anything. Uh, from an actual sibling to a fellow countryman, depending on its usage. But as often as not, that term was directed at a close male family member. Almost for certain, at least some of those who were present for Joseph's command to take his bones back to Canaan were his grandchildren and his nephews, and so on. Now, one final thing. Numbers used in the Bible have a lot of significance. Often they are not literal, but symbolic. Particularly when we see round numbers, like here with Joseph's death at 110, we need to be aware that it is likely that this is a symbolic number. That said, I have no doubt that many round numbers that we find were simultaneously literal and symbolic. Okay. So, this is not to say that Joseph didn't die very old. I'm very sure he did. The mention of his living to see his great-grandchildren born indicates this. But you see, in Egypt, in the Egyptian culture, the traditional number of a full lifespan was 110. Among the Hebrews, the traditional number is 120. In other words, if a person attained that many years or more, then they had lived an especially long life, blessed by the gods. Of course, few people actually did. Well, this ends our study of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And next week, we will begin Exodus. Okay, that's it for tonight.